Hey, welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Check us out on the web at missiodeschicago.com. Uh, I grew up in the church like, like many of you did. And if you've been around church at all for, for any stretch of time, you've heard a pastor say something along the lines of, you know, like, I'm not perfect. I'm on this journey with you, some variation of that. I heard that all the time from youth pastors, from senior pastors, from worship leaders, and I never quite believed them. I, I knew that they like made mistakes, but I always assumed that they had something that I didn't, that they knew something that I didn't, because they were up here preaching and teaching. And then I started preaching and teaching, and I quickly realized that just because someone hands you a mic doesn't mean you have everything figured out. And the topic we're diving in today, I feel... Um, particularly inadequate to address. Uh, I know it's easy to, we talked about how like greed is something that's almost easy to confess to because it's just so prevalent in our society. But as we've been going through this series, I really do feel like the Spirit's been doing a work on my heart um, and has been increasingly drawing me into the generosity of God. So I just want to, I want to admit up front this, this is not something I have figured out. Uh, just a quick illustration of this. A couple of weeks ago, um, my wife and I were driving in the car talking about um, money that we were going to give to something. And uh, I wanted to give less and she wanted to give more. That's generally like how it works in our relationship. Um, and as we were discussing this, um, she turned to me and she said, Reed, uh, I, I feel like you're quenching my ability to be generous. And that, it, it really, like, it cut into my heart because one of the things I love about my wife is she's incredibly generous. If you've ever been, if you've ever been over to our house for dinner or even just been around her, you know she's incredibly giving of her time, her resources, her energy. And so, so to hear those words from her that, like, this, this thing that God had gifted her and empowered her to do that I was, like, holding her back in that, um, it, it really, really broke my heart. And so... All of that to say, like, God is doing a work on me as, um, as this sermon series has been being preached and as I was working on this text. So these, what we're about to hear are some hard words from Jesus for people who are, are mired in a culture of consumption and greed. And so I, as, I'm, as I'm speaking these words of Jesus over you, I, just, I don't want you to assume that I have it all figured out. Um, I'm on this journey with you, and I'm, I, too, am, like, trying to learn what does it look like to live out the nature of Jesus in this world. So I think the problem that Jesus is getting at in this text that we have in Luke is that there's a bigger problem to to greed and consumption than it's simply wanting your time and your money. The problem with the greed of consumption is that it doesn't just want your money or your time, it wants your heart. Because it wants you to believe that it is the source of life. The, the real question we're being asked here is, where is your heart? What do, you, what do you think life, where do you think you're going to get your life from? Is it going to be from possessions? Or is it going to be from your father? And in this parable, Jesus, he unveils this lie of consumption, that consumption can be our source of life, that consumption can be our source of security, that consumption can be our source of joy. And he says, no. He takes our head and he turns our head and he says, look. Look away from your possessions. Look away from your resources. Look at my father. He is the one who is going to be 
the source of life. And so he, he's painting in vivid imagery the answer to this most basic question, what is the source of life? Just a little context for this text. Jesus is he's sitting and he's teaching these crowds. And it's really funny how he gets onto the subject of wealth because that's not what he was originally talking about. Originally, um, in, in the previous couple verses, he's, he's sitting and he's talking to his disciples and he's saying, you know, you're going to be persecuted to the point of death. You're going to be dragged in front of rulers and um, they're, they're going to ask you to give an account, to give a witness. But don't worry, don't be afraid. My spirit is going to give you the words to say. This, this, is, this is a deep, this is a, um, a, a sombering conversation Jesus is having with his disciples. It's dealing with matters of life and death. And in the middle of this conversation, someone in the crowd said to him, he, he, this guy in the crowd just like, he raise, raises his hand, he's like, teacher, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And it's, it's really jarring because we're in the middle of, it's like when you're having a conversation with someone um, and maybe it's an inside joke, maybe it's a story, maybe someone's just like pouring their heart out to you and someone like jumps into the conversation and is like, well, the Cubs didn't do well last night or something. Like, it's just, it's, it's jarring, it's weird, it's disorienting and that's sort of what I feel like Jesus must have experienced, but Jesus being gracious, he, he turns to the man and he says this. He says, man, who made you a judge or an arbiter over, over you? And he said to him, take care to be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And I love this guy's question because I think, I think what he was saying sort of makes sense. He's heard Jesus condemn greed. He's heard Jesus um, lift up the poor, say, like, the poor are the ones who are going to get the kingdom. And so this, this guy probably is the younger brother in this relationship. He's probably the one who's going to get almost nothing of the inheritance. And so he, he, he looks at what Jesus has been saying, condemning greed, and he looks at himself and he says, well, I'm not getting any of that stuff. And so Jesus must have come to split the stuff with me between me and my brother. And Jesus, Jesus looks at him and says, I didn't come to, to split the money between you and your brother. The, the problem here is not that your brother has possessions and you don't. The problem here is you have a heart that thinks your life is going to be sourced out of your possessions. You think your life consists of what you have and what you can accumulate. Jesus isn't primarily concerned about being a judge over who should get what amount of money. He's concerned about what beliefs and practices. He's concerned, about, he's concerned with beliefs and practices that see possessions as a source of life. And so he tells a parable. Verse 15, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in an abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Many times when people um, talk about this parable, they'll talk about it as the parable of, um, of the farmer, the rich farmer. And I think that that, that language, it kind of, um, 
it's not exactly the most clear because when someone says farmer to me, I think of someone who's like out in the land, like working the ground himself. For someone to produce a harvest like this, um, this guy was probably something more of a, like a medieval baron. Someone who owned a, a significant amount of land and rented it out to tenants who he then taxed really, really heavily for the privilege of, of working the land. So this isn't some guy who like just happens to get a really good harvest because he like had mad skills with a hoe. Um, he... This is someone who is in a position of power and authority. And what's most striking about it is this rich landowner's actions, they make really good sense. He's had this, he's had this massive harvest. Um, the market is probably glutted with grain and um, produce, and so all of his prices have now dropped, and he's not going to be able to make as much money. And so he says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my small barns, and I'm going to build bigger ones in their place. I'm not going to take up extra real estate that I could use to harvest, and I'm going to save the space, and I'm going I'm to hold back some of my harvest. And then um, later down the road, when, when the prices have gone back up, I can sell it for more money. And to most of us, like, that just sounds like good business sense. There's nothing wrong with that necessarily, is there? But there, there is a, a shadow to the actions that this landowner is taking. Uh, Joel Green says this in his commentary on Luke. What is good business practice for this wealthy farmer landowner has detrimental consequences for the peasants and the tenants who are his neighbors and who far outnumber him in the village economy. His decision to hold back his produce will reflect harmfully on the regional economy. It will at the same time secure his economic power and position of status in the village as others are made more and more dependent on him. So what, what made sense for this wealthy farm owner, um, landowner to do? What, what made good business sense was actually resulting in the exploitation of his neighbors. It, it, it was actually resulting in, in him shoring up power and authority and possession and security at the cost of those who he should have been responsible for. And so Jesus, he, he, he paints this picture of a very prudent Landowner, a landowner who's making good business decisions, and he says, you fool. And then we have a dramatic shift where Jesus goes and he says, okay, so that's the foolish way of life. That's, um, that's, that's foolish prudence over here, if you will. Now let me show you the life of a disciple. And I'm going to read the whole text again. Um, I don't think we ever, like, time's not wasted hearing t- the biblical text in church. So um, bear with me and just, like, receive from the Lord as I read this again. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, which you will eat, nor about your body, which you will put on it. For is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, Why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father, he he knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions 
give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so in contrast to the prudent foolishness of the rich landowner, Jesus turns his attention to the disciples and he says, here, 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 try this instead. Try not worrying about what you're going to eat. Try not worrying about what you're going to drink. Try not worrying about what you're going to wear. Like, he's not telling them not to worry about like, getting a new Mercedes. He's telling them don't worry about the very like, necessities of life. And again, to my mind, my first impression is this is foolishness. This is carelessness. If, if you should worry about anything, it should be the things that you're going to eat and the things that you're going to drink and the things that you're going to be wearing. But Jesus really, he, he lays on the irony because the language um, in these verses is, it's drenched in the language of Old Testament wisdom literature. Throughout the Proverbs, we see the author continually like turning to creation and saying, a good God who created and sustained the world created this. What do we learn about life from it? Look at the ant, sluggard, and be wise. And so Jesus steps into this grand tradition of, of, of speaking forth wisdom from creation, and he says, look at the ravens. Look at the field. And, and he uses the language of wisdom to describe this seemingly careless life. And again, the, the irony is rich because we have the prudent fool that Jesus calls on as a fool, and then this, this careless life that Jesus says is actually wise. And the irony is both the sensible fool and the, and the careless wise, they both want the same thing. They both want life. They both want security. They both want joy. They both want community. They just have radically different orientations of how to get that. And they're both operating on a radically different timeline. So again, returning to the question I asked in the beginning, what is the source of our life? Is, are we going to find the source of our life in possessions or are we going to find the source of our life in our Father? You could define life a lot of ways, but um, it seems the main ways that life is talked about in this passage are, are the themes of security, the theme of joy, and the theme of community. So the first question, what is the source of your security? And for the, for, for the rich fool, it's obvious. He says, and I will say to my soul, soul, you will have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. His security is in um, his wise and um, prudent accumulation of wealth and accumulation of possessions that are going to give him security, that are gonna, they're going to allow him to have comfort. And yet Jesus contrasts this with the generosity of our Father. And he says to us, for you, people of God, for you, Missio de Lincoln Square, security is found in extravagant generosity rather than accumulation. Verses 33 and 34 say, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in heaven that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But Jesus isn't just telling us to like go out in our, in our own power and our own strength and just try really, really hard to not be greedy, to try really, really hard to be generous. Instead, he, again, he takes our head and he, and he turns our eyes away from possessions, away from wealth, and he turns our eyes toward our Heavenly Father. 
And he says, look at the extravagant generosity of your God. Verse 32, fear not, little flock, fear not, Monsieur de Lincoln Square. For it is your father's good pleasure. God takes delight, God takes joy in giving you his kingdom. He turns, our, he turns our eyes towards the generosity of God. Get this for a moment. Um, before the creation of the world, in eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existed in perfect relational harmony. Some theologians call it like the divine dance. And out of, out of the overflow of love and joy and relationality, um, God speaks forth and creation is spun into existence. And yet that creation falls. And so out of his great love, out of the generous, reckless love of God, he sends his son. And as we, as we remembered a couple weeks ago, that son is nailed to a cross and dies. And in his final moments, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's more weight behind those words than we can, we can even comprehend because that divine dance, that perfect relational harmony between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that ex- existed from eternity was ripped apart in that moment. This, this is the generous, reckless, overwhelming love of God. And so Jesus, he takes our head and he turns our head and he says, look at your Father. Look at how your Father has poured out love, grace, truth. Look how he has not even withheld his own son from you. That, that is your watermark for gener- generosity. That is where true security is found. And so the source, the source of our security is in the abundant generosity of God. So what is the source of our joy then? Is it going to be in possessions or is it going to be in the Father? Again, the rich fool's answer is obvious. The source of his joy is in the comfort that he's able to uh, create from his accumulation. Um, Now that he's gathered his resources together, he can relax, he can eat, he can drink, he can be merry. Um, I love what Brian talked about uh, a couple months ago when we were in our This Is Our City series, we were talking about what, is, what does idolatry look like for us today? What is, the, what is the idol of the city of Chicago? Um, and I think Brian nailed it on the head when he said the idol that our hearts tend towards as Chicagoans is comfort. It's, it's thinking that like we'll work really hard, we'll survive like these brutal winters, and then we're going to enjoy ourselves in the summer. Um, we're going to be able to go to rooftop bars and patios and like music festivals and lavish vacations. Like we earned it, right? Like we, we worked through like the three feet of snow that like buried all of our cars. Like th- we deserve this. <laughs> and in a sense, like there's nothing wrong with going out to a restaurant or going on a vacation or going to a music festival. But think with me for a moment, the majority of people in the city of Chicago, that is the ultimate source of their joy. And that breaks my heart. That is the only place where they can find pleasure. And Jesus says, no, like ultimately these things are empty. Because the problem is, is the inner logic in a culture of, of consumption, which we, we live in a culture of consumption. And the inner logic of a culture of consumption is that the thing you buy today will not satisfy you tomorrow. Our, our, our um, stores, our economy, um, None of it works unless you believe this lie. None of it works unless you believe that the thing you consume today is not going to satisfy you tomorrow. 
And so we get, we get trapped in this continual cycle of um, obtaining and discarding, obtaining and discarding. And Jesus is saying, I, I want to free you from that. I want to free you from the trap of consumerism. And so again, Jesus takes our face and he turns our face away from possessions, away from our wealth, and he turns it and he says, look at my father. Look at the love my father has for you. This, this God who created and sustained everything we see, everything we know, this God cares for you. Verse 24, he says, consider the ravens. And ravens, um, they were like, kind of like pigeons are today. Like they were like the useless bird. They were actually even worse because they would like, they'd come and they'd, they'd like eat the seed out of your crop. So they're basically like flying rodents. And Jesus says, look at the ravens. Like look at the, look at the pigeons. God cares for the pigeons. Does he not care for you more than a pigeon? Meditate on, 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 the, on this overwhelming love of God who, who created the cosmos but cares for you. And we find joy, and out of that, out of, the, out of the overflow of the love of God, we are called to seek his kingdom. Verse 31, instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. And something, some people will take that and they'll say, okay, so like, if I seek the kingdom, then God will give me a, a hefty retirement account. Then God will give me a nice car. Then God will give me a pay raise. But notice that these things that's being referenced is, is, is not a Mercedes, it's not a vacation, it's not a pay raise. It's like the necessities of life. So God, God is not promising any of us the American dream. But God is promising to take care of us if we are willing to seek his kingdom. I love what Paul says in Philippians. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted for loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. So, so, so God takes us, takes our, Jesus takes our eyes off of the joy that we, we think we can find in our possessions and in our wealth. And he turns our eyes to the Father and he says, look, look at the love of the Father. Find your joy, find your pleasure in him. Finally, what is the source of our life? What is the source of our community? And this one, it, it's not quite as... Um, transparent in the passage, but I think with a close reading, it's, it's pretty clear that this is a major theme. Um, if you read through the parable of the rich fool, um, all of his decisions are made in complete isolation. A- every verb that's used in those verses is first person singular. I will. I will build. And then he, he does engage in like a little bit of self-talk. He like talks to his life, which is weird. Um, but but, but everything that happens in that text is, is done in, in utter isolation. And we have this stark contrast when Jesus um, turns and says, but not so with you. First, we see he's speaking to his disciples, which is, is plural. He's now speaking to a community. Um, and what isn't super clear in English translations is that all of these um, you commands, like you consider the ravens, um, every time that... The, when he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about what you will eat. Every time he says you in this passage, it's like the Texas you all. These aren't individual demands that are meant to encourage individualistic piety. 
These are, these are commands that are inviting us to be a spirit-filled community that leave, lives out an alternative economic system as the kingdom of God. And so if, if, if our eyes are stuck on possessions, ultimately we're, we're only going to experience isolation. Even if those possessions promise us community, even if they, they promise us family, it's always been really funny to me. Like, I'll see bank commercials where they'll say, like, um, come, join the family. And it's like, how am I joining your family? I'm sorry, Brad, I don't mean to throw <laughs> banks under the bus. Um, <laughs> um, I, I don't mean to... Uh, <laughs> So, um, but they'll say, like, come on, join the family. I'm like, how am I joining the family? Like, I'm giving you my money. You're giving me, like, a pittance of interest. You're going to make a bunch of money off my money, and I get, like, a lollipop in return. Like, <laughs> that's not a healthy family. Um, I, I used to work at Olive Garden, and their old slogan was, like, when you're here, you're family. Like, so, so come, eat some, like, really overpriced pasta, but some delicious breadsticks that will make up for it. Um, and, and, and by consuming and by that practice of consumption, you will become family somehow. The, the, these products, these experiences, they promise us community, but they are ultimately isolating. Often we let our, our, our possessions dictate what our community looks like. The way we dress dictates what our community looks like. Uh, as Chicagoans, we love to like make fun of tourists down in, um, or some Chicagoans, I guess I can't speak for all of you, but most people like to make fun of tourists. And I used to work on Michigan Avenue. You'd see them all the time, like, walking down with their fanny pack. And, and they'd, like, go, they'd go to the worst restaurants. It's like, you're in Chicago. You don't need to go to, like, a Darden-affiliated steakhouse. There's no need for that. There's no need for that here. Um, but, but even, and we laugh about it, but in doing that, what are we doing? We're, we're, we're dictating community based on what we're consuming. We're creating an us and them by saying, well... And to be fair, they did pick a terrible restaurant. But like, you, you picked a terrible restaurant, I didn't. Um, this is us, you are other. We let, we let our possessions dictate our community. And the irony of all of this is that it, re- it results in isolation and it results in competition. Um, there's been a bunch of work done on the way certain products are marketed, um, particularly to women, um, whether it's uh, makeup or clothes um, or, or any like particular um, feminine product, and the the research um, shows that there, there's been a, a huge development in them trying to basically pit women against each other and saying you need to look better than her in order to get him basically. And so while like consumption might promise like oh like we're all going to go to the mall together and we're going to be in community together community together um, and this is going to be like a communal activity in the end it ends up pitting us against each other and it, the exact same thing happens for men and so, and so the promises of community that possessions offer us are ultimately hollow and so again Jesus takes our eyes as we look at possessions longing for community longing for connection And he turns and he says, look, look at the family of my father. That is where I want you to find community. That is where the promise of life together is not hollow. Instead of decisions being made in isolation that result in um, oppressive systems, this new community is literally brought together for the sake of the poor and the needy. Listen to verse 33. 
sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus is inviting us to be participate in an, in an alternative economy. He's not saying, like, don't pay your taxes. The Bible is very clear. You should all pay your taxes. Um, hopefully you already did. Um, but, um, but, but what he is saying is the church needs to model something that looks radically different than the way money is looked at in, in, the, in the culture that surrounds you. And the only way, the only way we're going to be able to resist the formative power of greed and consumption is by a miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You cannot be a Christian in the United States and be sucked into the lie of consumerism without the power of the Holy Spirit. Like, this is truly a miraculous work that God needs to do in our midst, a spirit-inspired work that is not done by us just gritting our teeth and trying really, really hard not to be greedy. We need the Spirit to draw us into this. I love the the image that's painted in Acts 4. We're getting close to the season of Pentecost, guys, and I'm so excited um, for it to happen, for us to celebrate um, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. Um, and, and so the disciples, Jesus is raised from the dead, he's ascended, and he said, go into Jerusalem and wait for me. And then um, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, he, he's poured out, Peter preaches, like thousands of people get saved, and then um, Luke goes on to describe what this new community looks like. And he says this, all the believers were of one heart and mind. This is Acts 4.32. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. What a thing to aspire for. For time from time, someone who owned land or houses sold them, and they brought the money from the sales, and they put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Just a couple chapters later, um, we're going to hear a story about a man named Stephen, who's known as um, the first martyr for the Christian faith. And uh, his story is always, it's compelling and it's striking, but to me it's also troubling, because I always wonder, could I do that? Like, could I stand in front of, of an angry crowd with, with stones in their hand and, like, bear witness to Jesus? Because that's what Stephen does. He, he stares at a crowd intent on killing him and a crowd that ultimately does kill him. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this, this still happens in our world today. And, and I wonder, like, could I do that? Could I have the courage of Stephen, the conviction of Stephen. But what's striking to me is that I, I don't think Stephen like automatically got to the place where he could look that mob in the eye with courage and conviction. I think the, the formation of his desires, the, the, the formation of his affections, I think his heart was already the father's long before that moment when he stood in front of that crowd because right after that text that I just read to you, it says, and a man named Stephen um, he sold a plot of land and he laid the money at the apostles' feet. And this wasn't just like Stephen selling his summer home. Um, this wasn't the extra. Uh, this plot of land would have been passed down through the generations um, 
probably um, grandfathers and fathers would have worked this same land. This was Stephen's inheritance for um, the f- his family's future generations. This was a source of income for him, a source of security for him, and yet he, he, he leaves it all behind and he sells it and he lays it at the apostles' feet. And I think ultimately the, the reordering of Stephen's desires, the, the uh, renewing of his imagination, it started when he sold that field. And, and it reached its ultimate end when he faced down that crowd. And not many of us, I don't think, are going to have the opportunity to face down a crowd because of our witness to Jesus. But I do think some of us probably are being called into a spirit of radical generosity that gives our heart to the Father rather than our heart to possessions. So what what does this look like for us to be an alternative community? What does it look like for the church to... For the church, the way that, what if the way the church handled money was like, that's our proclamation to the world. We didn't need to like make billboards that like, there's weird Christian billboards out there, right? Like they like, co- like, like they copy the Got Milk commercial, but it's like Got Jesus. Like I've, I've literally seen these. You can see them if you drive to Indiana, I think. They're like, they're peppered. Um, so like, what, what if the church's proclamation was not cheesy billboards, What if the church's proclamation was the fact that we are a people who have radically reordered the way that we understand money? What if we are a people who see not possessions and money as the source of life, but rather see our Father in heaven as the source of life? Stanley Howard says this, Christians, particularly in capitalist social orders, are told it is not wealth or power that is the problem, but rather we must be good stewards of our wealth and power. However, Jesus is very clear. Wealth is a problem. Christians do not seek to be subversive. It just turns out that living according to the Sermon on the Mount cannot help but challenge the way things are. And I want you to hear me carefully. I'm I'm not saying capitalism is evil. I'm not saying Jesus is like a proto-socialist. I am saying, though, that as, as Christians who live in an economy that is grounded in consumption and greed, that we need to be very, very careful that we're not sucked in to the idol. It, we're, like, we're like fish in water. We don't even know that like, it's all around us because we're so entrenched in it. So again, this isn't about saying capitalism is bad or socialism is bad. It's not about either like major economic system. This is about where, where are our hearts? And what does it look like for the church 